please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 14 through 20. That is Mark 1, 14 through 20, a passage that's going to be found under the translator heading, Jesus Begins His Ministry. Si habla español, abran sus Biblias a Marcos capítulo 1, versículos 14 a 20. El título de la traducción dice, Jesús principia a su ministerio. And now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, I know that this is a safe place to learn how to read the Bible. We're all learning together each and every week as we gather. And even if you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. You can go ahead and grab one from underneath the center chair out toward the center aisle. Or you can open up your phone's web browser or Bible app of choice and go to Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. This morning we'll be reading, as we always are, reading from the ESV translation. And so, by way of brief introduction, Mark is a book in our New Testament, which, very simply put, tells the story of Jesus. Mark is one of the three synoptic gospels, uh, which means seen together, like Matthew and Luke, but it's written to a particular audience with a particular sort of approach. And Mark's gospel, which is the first gospel account to be written down, completed sometime in the mid to late 60s AD, is above all else a story. Mark, the author, is a storyteller, and he's written his account of Jesus' life and ministry in order to bring us into the story of who Jesus is and what he's done in such a way that our own stories would be changed. It's not just about the transfer of information, but he seeks to shape us, to change us, and to transform us as we behold Jesus. As we see who he is and what he has done, it is meant to change who we are and how we live. And so as a church, we've been engaging in Mark's purpose for writing this gospel by asking a crucial question these past two weeks. We've submitted to you, Kyle has submitted to us in these first two weeks, that this question is not only the most important question we should ask, but also the first question we should always ask. And the question is this, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? As we read the Gospel of Mark, the first question we should always ask is not, where do I fit into this story? But who is Jesus? And what is Mark declaring to be true about his story? Moreover, as we live our lives, the first question we need to ask is not, well then, what should I do? But instead, what has Jesus done? We need to ask these questions because if we don't start with Jesus' story, then our story, quite frankly, will never make sense. We need to ask these questions because how we live is directly downstream of the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. In any given situation of life, church, starting with Jesus and not ourselves will lead us to think, to act, to desire, to respond to whatever is before us in a way that is informed, but also transformed by the greatest story of all time. The greatest story of all time in which our own personal stories exist, in which they live and move and have their being. And so we need to ask these questions each Sunday as we read the Gospel of Mark. We need to ask these questions each day of our lives. And this Sunday morning, as we look to Mark, the story of Mark, it continues to unfold as the public ministry of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and servant of God, begins. And as it does, he himself, get this, he himself answers for us these most important 
of questions. Here, he'll speak his very first words of the narrative, and he'll tell us in summary form just who he is and what he's come to do. And so, without any further ado, let's turn to behold Jesus. As he's been revealed in the scriptures, let's read God's word together and then pray and ask for God's help. So beginning in verse 14, Mark writes, Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word and how you've revealed yourself to us in grace. You've gathered us in grace. You've sought us in grace. And even now you meet us according to your grace, but we know we need your help still. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would fill us, that you would illuminate our minds to understand the words, that you would open our hearts to receive them, and that you would empower us uh, to live in light of them, to respond to them in, in the ways in which you would have us to respond. I pray that you would help me to preach the word, to declare the gospel of God with boldness, with clarity, and with all the joy that comes from beholding this good news that you have for us. Lord, we ask that you would glorify yourself in the preaching and reading of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So a question for you as we begin. And this might sound a little odd, but just go with it. Think about it. If you had to answer the question, what's your theme song? (laughs) What would it be? Think about it. What's your theme song? If you had to pick a song that defined and described you, what would it be? Something that would provide the frame, uh, you know, around you and what your life's all about. Something that would give us the flavor, you know, of who you are. A, a tune that would set the tone for the mission and the purpose of your life. What would your theme song be? Think about this, and I think Christopher's found one back there. Some of you maybe are still searching. Some of you have probably arrived, but what would your theme song be? In the 10th grade, I picked a Metallica song (laughs) when completing an assignment in my language arts class that was asking this same question. And I thought this was a pretty cool selection back then. I I still stand by it. I think it's pretty cool now as well. But (laughs) what would I say now, (laughs) many years later? What would I say now? What would you say now? What theme would take us right into the heart of who you are, of who I am? of what you're all about, right? What you've been given to do in life. And all silliness aside, (laughs) pushing beyond maybe memories of cartoon theme song intros that are uh, dancing through your head, or visions of 10th grade metal Jeff, (laughs) this is not a bad question to ask. It's not a bad question to go, what what am I all about? What is the, the purpose and the mission? What sets the tone 
What's the defining characteristic of my life and mission and purpose? Not a bad question to ask, but even as we ask it, a better question (laughs) remains. What about Jesus? What was the theme song of his life? What was the frame and flavor, the heartbeat and defining feature of his story? The essential plot line that is being developed and that is progressing through the gospel account. If the first and most important question that we can ask is, who is Jesus? Then wouldn't it be important to know what he regarded as the central arc of his own story? And just like on TV, right? A theme song, it gets you ready. Um, It gets you ready and in the right frame of mind to enter into a particular story, right? You can think with me right now of how the first notes of your favorite show, they transport you into um, the world of that show, how they make you eager to dive back into the story, to tap right into what it's all about. Or think in classical music, the theme of the, the piece of music is the first and main melody that you hear. It's the melody that the rest of the music will be based upon in that symphony. To miss this theme, then, would be to lose sight of how that symphony is progressing as that main theme is first introduced, then expanded, then recapitulated throughout the entire piece. It's to miss the beauty, then, and the purpose of the composer. Or in rhetoric and writing, especially if there are there any... Uh, of our kids here, any students in here who are maybe working on their essays, right, learning how to write, you have to come up with a thesis, right? The thesis in your writing is the main point of what you will be arguing and defending. And if you lack that, your paper's going nowhere. Or if you're reading someone else's writing and you miss the thesis, well, you're never going to be able to understand the argument. You won't follow and you won't be satisfied with the conclusion. And in Mark chapter 1, particularly in verses 14 through 15, Jesus comes into the story and he hits play on his own theme song. He offers the thesis for the argument. The argument being, this is who I am and this is what I've come to do. This is the central theme of my story. And it's important here at the outset of the Gospel of Mark, as we're following along in the story of Jesus, that we are crystal clear on this, isn't it? Who does Jesus say he is? What has he told us he's come to do and is continuing to do even now? It's not up to us to take parts of Jesus' person and his work that seem suitable to us and fit them into our lives. No, we don't just take bits and pieces of his story and plug them into ours. He calls us out of our personal stories and into his. And if we don't have our feet firmly planted in his story, we won't be very effective at following him, will we? And if we don't have his song set squarely in our heads, we'll be prone to, go with me here, march to our own beat. Yes? We'll be prone to change the lyrics of the song of our lives. We'll be prone to not take Jesus as he is, but as we want him to be. And even if we don't utterly misconstrue Jesus and come out with a totally different portrayal of Jesus in the biblical account, if we're less than grounded in his story, we'll be less able uh, to, and it'll seem increasingly less relevant to us in the the diverse aspects of our lives um, to understand our stories in light of his. The less grounded we are in in his story, the less we'll be able to see how that story connects to our own, how it connects to the biggest and smallest, the most weighty and least 
seemingly significant aspects of our lives. The farther we are from understanding what this is all about, the less we'll be able to make those connections to our own lives. And the more we'll live our own lives, not in light of who he is and what he's done. So we need to be clear on what the center of that is. And so the question then is, so what's the story of Jesus all about? What was the first thing he began to do as his public ministry began? Well, Mark tells us in verse 14 that after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. And what was he doing? He was proclaiming the gospel of God. And that's it right there. It's very simply put, but utterly foundational, church. This is what Jesus came to do. This is the central theme of his story. And it's this. That the story of Jesus is the story of the gospel. The story of Jesus is the story of the gospel. And this might seem like a given, but if we miss the foundation, all the rest of it is going to fall apart and not make sense. The story of Jesus is the story of the gospel. The story of Jesus is the story of good news. The good news of what he would announce and the good news of what he would accomplish as the Christ, the Son of God. And as we'll see this morning, as we get into the text that's before us, this gospel, here's the claim we're making, is the best story that God is writing. There's no better story than this gospel. And moreover, this gospel is the better story that he calls us into. And these two realities, that the gospel is the best story and that it is the better story, they form uh, the two points that will guide us for the rest of our time together this morning. Because what Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20 is all about is that in and through Jesus, point number one, God is writing the best story. This is verses 14 through 15. And point number two, in and through Jesus, God calls us into a better story. Verses 16 through 20. And so... We dive into our first point and come to reckon with the reality that according to Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, the story of Jesus is the story of the gospel, and the story of the gospel is the best story there is. And the aim of our first point is to prove that this is in fact the case, that this is true. And so we look beginning in verse 14 and summarizing this, we're entering into the scene now. We learn that John the Baptist has been arrested. And we'll learn more of his story in Mark chapter 6, um, but Mark doesn't elaborate on that any further here. <laughs> um, but the point is clear. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee to begin preaching. The point is this, is that John the Baptist, the forerunner who came um, to give us the prologue that we've heard, to introduce Jesus, the one who was mightier than he who would come. John has now <laughs> been um, taken away. He served his purpose, right, as the setup guy. And now the mighty one that he proclaimed has arrived. John is removed and made to decrease so that Jesus could step into the situation and increase. As R.T. France aptly puts it, the role of the forerunner is over and the time of fulfillment has come. And so the passage begins with John being moved off of the center stage in the narrative. And into the scene then comes Jesus, who has just been, as we heard last week, anointed as God's Christ, the Messiah, by the Spirit, and declared to be and proven to be in the wilderness and in his baptism, the truly obedient Son of God. 
And Jesus, like John, he comes with a message to proclaim and a call to repentance, as we read. Yet, unlike John, Jesus is not in the wilderness where people would have to go out and journey to him, but instead, he's in Galilee. And now he has moved up north into the inhabited areas, into the towns, into the cities, and he is going out to people with a proclamation. John said, prepare, he's coming. And now Jesus has arrived and he is taking the message to the people. He's bringing to bear this story, this gospel story upon all who will hear. And so what was he um, proclaiming then as he entered into the towns of northern Galilee? Well, it says in verse 14 very clearly that he was proclaiming the gospel of God. As we've already mentioned, the story of Jesus is the story of this gospel. But following that up, you would ask then, but what's the content of the gospel message? What was the substance of the good news that he proclaimed? So as not have a secular you know, argument. Jesus' story is the gospel story. Gospel story is Jesus' story. Just go on and on and on. But what was he getting at? What was he proclaiming to the people? Verse 15 provides the answer to this. Jesus, in proclaiming this gospel, was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. He announced in verse 15 that the time is fulfilled. That is, that the decisive moment in history has now arrived. The wait was over for the arrival of this kingdom of God. The hopes of, God people, of God's people are now being realized. For, he says, this kingdom is at hand, meaning that this kingdom has now come. It's now been brought near. What was once something that was far off and long awaited has come near in Jesus. It has begun to be realized. God is now fulfilling his age-long purpose. A new era of fulfillment has begun, says scholar R.T. France once again. And so, whatever it means that this kingdom is here, and we'll get to that, Mark 1, verse 14 through 15, is clear that it is Jesus, following me here, who is bringing in this kingdom. The time is fulfilled because he's come, and the kingdom is at hand because he, Jesus, has brought it near. It's come near in the person of Jesus. And as another scholar says, the king is present, so the kingdom is near. The king is present, the kingdom is here, and this reality, as we read further on in verse 15, should be responded to with repentance and received by faith, as the rest of the verse indicates. And so with this proclamation, Jesus has come onto the scene, he's proclaiming the gospel, which is the gospel of the kingdom, saying, it is now here in me. It's being fulfilled, it's coming about in and through me and what I'm doing. With this proclamation, the public ministry of Jesus has begun. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And as we read Mark, these two verses are important because throughout the, the book, Jesus and his disciples, they'll be frequently described as proclaiming as preaching, as giving a message. But <laughs> nowhere else in Mark's gospel will the content of that message be really uh, very much elaborated upon. <laughs> will Mark give us indications as to what they're preaching and what they are saying, which means that these two verses are key in understanding what that preaching and proclaiming ministry is all about. These two verses provide the content of the message that we are to assume as the reader of Mark is being preached throughout the entirety of the gospel by Jesus and his disciples. R.T. France says again, verses 14 through 15, therefore, they play a crucial role in Mark's story as the reference point 
for all subsequent mentions of the proclamation initiated by Jesus and entrusted by him to his followers. Here is the essential content of the gospel, this kingdom message. And so we've established then the connection between the gospel and the kingdom and the central role this proclamation um, has in Mark. This has been established, but now, (laughs) next question. It's important we ask, what then is this kingdom of God? If the gospel is the good news of the coming kingdom, what does that mean? What does that entail? What is the kingdom of God? And some of you might have asked this question before, saying, what the heck is the kingdom of God anyway? You might have heard that this is an oft-debated phrase in biblical studies. And you could probably find a wide range of responses if you studied into or went on Google and said, what is the kingdom of God? You might find a lot of different replies. Uh, We're told that we should seek first the kingdom, right? You might have heard uh, people refer to certain kinds of work as kingdom work or describe themselves as kingdom-minded or kingdom people. You may be familiar with the debate as to whether the kingdom has already come in full or if it's all future and it's all coming later and it's not here at all right now. (laughs) You might consider the kingdom in a number of different ways. It could be uh, a heavenly reality somewhere out there with no earthly bearing. It could be a cultural project we're all called to enact, right, and to achieve. Maybe it's some kind of socialist, collectivist utopia. Maybe that's what the kingdom is all about, where everyone shares everything in common. Or maybe the kingdom is the military defeat and conquest of particular nations and peoples that have opposed God's work in the world. Maybe that's the kingdom. Or, heck, maybe the kingdom is just pious talk that we tell ourselves in a world that's so full of sin and suffering and brokenness that it's hard to believe God is reigning in any real or or meaningful sense. Church, the kingdom of God is often misconstrued. Yet, It was at the very heart of the story of Jesus. Who he is and what he came to do are bound up in the good news of the kingdom of God. So it's critical that we understand what this means. And so two definitions for you guys. One narrowly defined, one more broadly defined. Narrowly defined, the kingdom of God is God's reign. Period. God's reign over God's people in God's place. This is the kingdom of God. God's reign over God's people in God's place, wherever that is. That's where the kingdom is. But a little bit more broadly defined. Jesus comes and says, this coming kingdom is good news. The fact that it is arriving is good news for those who would hear it and receive it and respond to it. And so in light of the situation in which God's people found themselves as the ministry of Jesus has begun, in light of all mankind's sinful rebellion towards God and to Israel's covenant unfaithfulness to their God that's led to their exile and to their oppression, to their longing and waiting for God to return to them, the coming of God's kingdom would mean the coming of God's redemptive reign, more broadly defined. The coming kingdom is God's redemptive reign being brought to bear upon his people. In other words, it's the dawning of the age of salvation, when God would fulfill all of his promises of the Old Testament to save his people, to regather them, to bring them back to himself, to forgive their sins, to defeat all their enemies. The coming kingdom is the fulfillment of all the promises of God to save his people. And so it's good news because it's saving news. It's redeeming news. This is what Jesus has come to proclaim. And inserting this here, it's important that we don't pass go too far with seeing that the good news that he came to proclaim was about God's kingdom. First and foremost, not 
our kingdom, not your kingdom. We can't miss this. The good news is not about what you can do to achieve security, blessing, stability, all the blessings and benefits of the little kingdoms we might build, but the good news is about God, about what God is doing, about who God is, about what God can do that we could never do to find a, a happy and hopeful ending to our own personal stories. It's not found in us. It's not found in our own project, our own efforts, our own work. It's found in the work of God. The kingdom is the kingdom of God. What he is doing for his people, that is to be received by faith. And this is what Jesus has come to bring. He's come to bring the good news of this kingdom of God's redeeming reign. And so, what Old Testament hopes then, for us to dive into this a little bit more, were associated with the coming of this kingdom of God? Because I said it contains everything, and we can't go over everything, but what are a few things (laughs) that are contained in this hope of the coming kingdom? In other words, continuing to explain this, why was the coming kingdom good news for God's people? Um, Because the coming of the kingdom would mean, and I'll give you a longer list, and then we'll dive into three particular categories here, but first a longer list of um, a number of things the coming kingdom means in the Old Testament. Um, Scholar Jonathan Lund says, these following things are some of the entailments of the coming kingdom. And here's a list. There's seven things. You don't got to write them all down. Just listen to them. He says this, the judgment of Israel's enemies, the return of the exiles, the rebuilding of the temple, the coming of the Messiah, the establishment of a new covenant, the outpouring of the Spirit, the healing and purification of the people of God, and the inclusion of the nations in the blessings of the kingdom. This is a summary list of the Old Testament hopes of the coming kingdom. And scholar Jeremy Treat, he offers us three um, summary categories that we'll spend some time unpacking uh, from this list here. He provides us with three major hopes of the Old Testament that were associated with God's coming kingdom, three hopes that are fulfilled in and through Jesus. And there are these three things. One, the coming kingdom meant victory over evil. That is, victory over the enemies of God and the enemies of his people. This meant victory over um, and judgment for foreign oppressors of God's people. But even more than that, it meant the dethroning of Satan, the ruler of this world, according to John 12, verse 31. Second thing it meant was the forgiveness of sins. In the Old Testament prophets, the arrival of the kingdom would come together with the forgiveness of the sins of God's people, in the establishment of the new covenant. Um, God's people were in exile because of their sin. (laughs) That was why they were in the situation they were in, feeling far from the Lord, oppressed by foreign powers. They were in the mess they were in because of their sin. Exile and and this oppression, they were God's judgment upon them, and the people were awaiting a time when the judgment would be complete and their sin would be fully atoned for. To regather them and to reestablish his rule over them Fully and finally, the Lord would need to once and for all deal with his people's sins so that they'd be remembered no more. The forgiveness of sins is entailed in the coming kingdom. And third thing here, the expectation and hope of a new exodus, a new exodus with the coming kingdom. Um, An end to the exile of God's people, the dispersion right into the nations that they experienced after foreign oppressors came and conquered them, um, and the regathering of God's people back to the promised land um, would be like a new exodus. This is how it's described uh, in the prophets. Um, right now, as I said, 
the people of God, the people of Israel, they're still ruled by foreign oppressors. They're still scattered throughout all the world. And God has not been speaking through his prophets for some time now. They're waiting for God to bring them out of all this, to gather them back together again, to restore the people of God. God's rule, as we said, over his people, it happens in his place. And so the Jews, they hope to be regathered into the place where God reigns. They hope to be regathered into the promised land um, and have that land restored to them, have that kingdom reestablished amongst them. And the Old Testament prophets, they hope that God, as king, might deliver his people again through a new exodus, resulting not only in a new land, but as we read in the prophets and as this hope and expectation develops, this would result not only in a new promised land, but in a new heavens and new earth entirely. Church, the prophets, they spoke of this new exodus in such a way that it not only indicated a return to the land as it was, but really a re-entrance of God's people into the paradise of God. A new land, a new people, a new kingdom that would forever be established and never shaken. It's a new creation that they're longing for in which God's reign would be established forever and his kingdom would never be shaken again. They're longing for these things. And so these are the hopes that would have been stirred up in the hearts of those people who heard Jesus proclaiming what he was. And as he said, the wait is over. God's redemptive reign and all the blessings of salvation, they're within reach because Jesus is now here. According to Mark, the time has been fulfilled because Jesus the Messiah has come. The kingdom of God is at hand because it's been brought near in the person of Jesus. And briefly here, we want to connect some dots. The story of Mark, it shows us just how Jesus fulfills the hopes of the people of God and ushers in this kingdom. And so, briefly, in each of these three categories, victory over evil, forgiveness of sins, new exodus, we want to look at how Mark portrays Jesus fulfilling these things and accomplishing these things. First, victory over evil. The story of Mark began, as we read last week, with a head-to-head face-off with Satan in the wilderness. Jesus comes immediately to confront evil and the evil powers Satan tempts him for 40 days, but Jesus does not succumb. And at the end of the story, upon the cross, Jesus would take away the legal basis for Satan's accusations against God's people by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands as it was nailed to the cross. In this way, Colossians 2 says, God disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Christ has come to do battle and to defeat the ruler of this world. And as he comes, we'll read in the gospel, he's coming and he's exercising and casting out demons. We'll see this next week. He's pushing back and gaining ground against the powers of darkness. He described his own ministry as coming to bind the strong man, that is Satan, and plundering his house, taking those who have been um, oppressed by Satan, men and women who have been held captive by him. Jesus has come to free them, to liberate them, He even sends his disciples out, as we'll see in chapter 3 and 6, to go do the same. He gives them authority over unclean spirits and the power to cast out demons, to gain ground again on the enemy. And even at the end of um, his ministry, Christ stands before the people of God, right, who are opponents of God, are rejecting him, the religious leaders and rulers, and says, hey, you crucify me, you put me away, you condemn me, but you'll see me exalted and reigning, (laughs) And within that generation, within 40 years, the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed, proving that Jesus was who he said he was, vindicating him and showing those who opposed him and rejected him that they were, in fact, wrong. And God is overturning every earthly kingdom as well, every earthly opponent of the reign of God through his Christ, through his Messiah. Christ comes to do do battle 
with Satan and to achieve victory over the evil one. Second thing, the forgiveness of sins. The story of Mark begins with John the Baptist calling Israel to prepare for the coming kingdom by receiving a baptism of forgiveness, um, or excuse me, a repentance for the forgiveness of sins, indicating John was the, ne- the necessity of forgiveness in order to be reconciled with the coming king. And Jesus in chapter 2 of Mark's gospel, we'll see this in the coming weeks, he forgives the sin of the paralytic even before he heals him to show that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sin. And then in the next chapter, the next passage rather, um, he is welcoming sinners to eat with him. He comes and he receives sinners at his table. He's receiving the tax collectors and the sinners and those the society looks down upon and he's offering them a welcome into his presence. He's offering them participation in the kingdom of God. Christ is forgiving sin and receiving sinners. And more than this, Mark makes clear to us the means of forgiveness that we receive in Christ. And it's through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. That is, that Jesus would come to deliver God's people from their sins through his sacrificial death upon the cross. He himself describes his death as a ransom for many in Mark 10.45, paying the price to free the guilty from their sentence by taking that sentence upon himself. And in this ransom death, he'd established the new covenant in his blood, shedding his own blood to seal the covenant promise of God to take away the sins of his people and remember them no more. Jesus came for the forgiveness of sins. Finally, a new exodus. The story of Mark, it begins with Jesus' ministry uh, being quoted from Uh, from the book of Isaiah, a section in the book of Isaiah where the prophet speaks and says, comfort, comfort to the people of God because now God is acting uh, to redeem and to regather. Now the punishment and the judgment has been fulfilled. Now is the time for God's grace to be brought to bear upon you. And then Jesus comes and what does he do? But like Israel, he passes through the water. He goes out into the wilderness for a period of 40 days. He is tempted, does battle with Satan and does not succumb. He is coming, and in his coming, he is going through that exodus experience himself. And as he doesn't succumb to Satan, he's indicating to us that he's surely going to reach the promised land, that he is surely going to bring all those who trust in him and are included with him uh, into that new creation as well. Throughout the gospel, we see Jesus regathering and restoring God's people, right? He calls 12 apostles to himself, like the 12 tribes of Israel, to say that he is regathering and reconstituting and restoring the people of God around himself. Jesus comes and he represents the inbreaking of the new creation. He's the one who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit, the one who makes all things new, the one who gives new birth, the one who gives um, those who have a heart of stone, a heart of flesh. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Christ comes and he reverses the effects of our fallen and sinful world, right? He heals those who are sick. He opens the eyes of the blind. He opens the ears of the deaf. He causes the lame to walk. He heals those who have been struggling with chronic and long-standing disease. He is reversing the effects of the fall. He's raising even the dead. And all this comes to an apex and a climax in his own resurrection from the dead, which ushers in the new creation um, in him and through him. And so we could go on and on. (laughs) But the story of Mark is the story of Jesus, who is, in fact, the kingdom bringer. That's who he is. That is what he's come to do. And, as we just heard, based on all that it means for the kingdom to come, to say he is the kingdom bringer is to say nothing short than to call him the Savior, the Redeemer. 
that in and through him, God is writing the great story of our salvation, the best news, the best story we could ever hope to be a part of. The gospel, which is the best story because in it, the great conflict of our sin is fully and finally resolved before a holy God. The gospel in which the ancient antagonist of God's people, Satan himself, is defeated and every wrong is righted in and through Jesus Christ. In which everything becomes what it was meant to be. Everything is made new and we, his people, entered into a restored creation in which Sam, um, the hobbit, in The Return of the King, says that everything sad has been made untrue. We'll enter into that place, into that restored and renewed Eden and new creation in and through Jesus Christ. This is the best story with the happiest and most hopeful of endings. Church, there is no other story like this one because there's no other story of any kingdom that has Jesus as the king who brings in that kingdom. And here in Mark 1, we see that Christ has come to bring in this kingdom. This is his story. But the most wonderful thing is that he then turns around and he calls us. He invites us. He welcomes us into the story. And this leads us to our second point. Christ calls all people to repent of following after and seeking the promises of lesser stories and to believe in him as the one who is offering the better story. And in verses 16 through 20, Christ comes and he calls four fishermen into this story. He calls them into this gospel story, this new reality. And as a preacher, I wanted to say for the purposes of alliteration that he welcomes them into this story um, to match with writing in the first point. But call is really better (laughs) and much more accurate to what's going on in the text. It is a call that he offers. It is a summons from a royal authority, from the king himself. Not just a warm welcome or a kind invitation that he makes to these fishermen here in these verses, but a royal summons that cannot be ignored or refused. These fishermen, as we'll see, could not and would not resist these summons. And so we see that Jesus, he came to announce and to achieve uh, this best story, this gospel story through his life, his death, and resurrection. But as I said, what's even more wonderful is that he calls us into this story. And church, this is in sheer and wonderful grace. In this grace, Jesus calls us out of our stories and into a better story with him. He welcomes us to find our place in the best story that God is writing in and through him. And so we see now that the great and the most grand story of all time is unfolding. The kingdom of God is here, and what would we expect to happen next if we were just thinking, what might follow this pronouncement of Jesus? That he would go and storm the gates of (laughs) Jerusalem, overthrow the Romans, and big things would start to happen, right? Of some kind. But instead, what does happen? He says the kingdom is here, and he proceeds to call four working-class Jewish fishermen to join him. He calls ordinary people longing for and hoping for the good news of God's kingdom to receive that. He calls us out of our own personal stories, just like he called them to join him in the great story of the gospel. We might expect something different, but this is what Jesus does. And so we see in verses 16 through 20 that Christ, the kingdom bringer, who's just announced that he will come and accomplish all these things, he's passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, and he sees Simon, who will later be called Peter, and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. 
for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me. He gives them a call, a command, and I will make you become fishers of men. Meaning that as he sees them fishing for fish, (laughs) he says, hey, let me and allow me and I will redefine your purpose, your mission, uh, the orientation of your life in that you are now fishing uh, for your livelihood, but I'm going to help you and cause you to fish now for men, to save them from judgment, to save them from God's wrath, to bring them into this kingdom alongside of you and me. He calls them to become fishers of men, and it says, and immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending their nets, and immediately he called them as well, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat uh, with the hired servants, and they all followed him, much the same way. And so Christ comes to these four, these disciples who were later be named as apostles. We'll learn more about them in Mark 3 and in the rest of the story. Uh, But for now, the point that they're serving um, today is very clear, that the kingdom bringer himself... (laughs) comes to bring the kingdom right to these men. He calls them particularly and specifically and effectively into a new life, into a new story. He brings them into his kingdom. He brings them out of their own stories and into his. And he calls them in such a way that they will never be the same. And so two things to note here uh, that are important. Jesus calls them. And as he says to um, Simon and Andrew, that he'll redefine their purpose and their mission. Um, and then the second thing is that we see what these men leave behind. Um, so Jesus is calling them into something that is new, something that is transformative, something that is redefining their identity, their purpose, uh, their, um, again, their theme in life. And then Jesus is calling them in such a way that they are willingly leaving behind, it says, their nets, and then even for James and John, their father. The nets, they, they, they symbolize their livelihood, their work. Everything that would be wrapped up in their job and all the identity that that could bring them. right? Their work, their success, their achievement. Even their routine, their comfort, what is normal to them. The security that comes from a consistent paycheck. He says, leave that behind and, and follow me into something new, into something better. But into something uh, that is even greater than the promises of the nets and what the net can bring you. Second thing, James and John, they leave even their father behind. And it says they leave him behind with the hired men in the boat, which is kind of stark. They leave their father behind with hired guys. His own sons leave him behind to follow Jesus. So much, so, uh, you know, more worth it is for them to follow Jesus, even to stay with their own father. And they leave behind family in the sense that they leave behind other people right? And the love, the acceptance, the belonging, right? The worth that we can derive from others, they leave this behind because they're pursuing an identity, a worth um, that comes from Jesus, not from other human beings. So much so is it worth it to follow Jesus that even their own father (laughs) is not compelling enough to keep them in the boat. They're renouncing the nets. They're turning their back even on family. Um, This is not to say Jesus doesn't want you to work a job (laughs) or he doesn't want you to love your family, but it is saying that he doesn't want your story to be defined by anything less than him. He doesn't want your story to be defined by your nets, even by your family or by any other thing in your life that could be competing for the central theme. He says, come and follow me. The central theme of your life and of your story is now going to be found in relation to me, 
From me, you'll derive your identity. You'll derive your purpose. You'll derive your worth. Who you are and what you'll do becomes clear in as much as you receive it from me. And so he says to us, don't get entangled in the nets. Don't even be preoccupied with some of the relationships and ties that could bind us because nothing is more important for us to understand who we are and what we ought to do than who Jesus is and what he has given us to do. Leave the nets, even family behind. Do not become entangled in them, but find our identity, our worth, our purpose, and nothing less than in Jesus himself. Because, and this is good news, this is a better story, <laughs> all the other things, work, family, any other thing we could place in for that competing role, these things are temporary. These things are changing. These things do not and will not last. Success and achievement comes and goes. Relationships ebb and flow, and there's strain in them. And other things that we could hang our hat on to say, this is who I am, this is what I'm about, could be here one day and gone the next, but Jesus remains. He is the same, and he is asking us to come into the better story. He's calling us into the better story in which who we are <laughs> and what we were given to do is fixed upon him, the one who does not change, the one who is perfect, the one who is good, the king um, in whom there is no shifting shadow or variance. He is calling us to invest our all and figure out who we are uh, in and through him. And Jesus calls them then. He calls them in a way that they could not <laughs> and they would not um, deny it. He calls them effectively and effectually into this life um, with him. We see that Mark, he doesn't give any explanation, right, in the text as to why they followed. He doesn't say, well, they thought about it, they knew Jesus before, or, or something like that, right? It just says what? That Jesus called them into this reality. He called them to leave behind these lesser things, and they just did it. <laughs> he calls them as one who has the authority to call them into a story like this, right, as the Christ, the Son of God, and he calls them, and he calls us in grace. He calls us in the grace because it says in God's word that no one seeks for God, right? No, not one. But here, God is seeking for men. God is seeking for us. And he is calling them, just as he has called us, into a story that we never would have chosen or written for ourselves, but is far better than anything we could achieve through the building of our own kingdom or through the definition or the central story arc being derived from anything else but Christ. He calls us into a better story. He calls us with authority. He calls us according to grace. And he calls us into life with him. And so church, would we respond to this <laughs> by being amazed that he in fact has sought us and he has called us, that he has included us in his story. This hit me this week as I was preparing this sermon, thinking that he's called me out of all my feeble and failing attempts to write a better story than him. And don't we all do that sometimes? Want to write a better story or think we could than what God has designed for us? And he just struck me with the reality that just like these fishermen, he came to me and he called me in such a way that I could do no other to respond with faith and obedience. And I thanked God. I thanked him that I knew him. I thanked him that he brought the kingdom to me and me into the kingdom and that I was no more because of his call headed into the dead-end tragedy of a story that I would be writing where I would miss the whole point of it all, where I would miss <laughs> the great story that it's all about, where I would miss the gospel. <sighs> and I was freshly amazed that I get to live with him, that I get to live for him, and that I get to live alongside you as we've all been called into this kingdom story, this gospel story. Church, there truly is no life better than what Christ has called us into, according to his grace, 
And so would we marvel at that? And would we consider the nets that we're tempted, that we're prone to become entangled in, as we are competing uh, in our hearts, right, to live for the story that Jesus has called us into versus the stories that we might write for ourselves? And even today, if you've never responded to Christ's summons, and you're hearing these words now and say, wow, this truly is the best story. He truly is the best king. I want him. You can receive him today by faith. If you've never believed in Christ before, you can receive the king by repenting of sin, by repenting of writing your own story, and by receiving him by faith as the one who has the better and the best story of all. And so, church, in conclusion, the story of Jesus, it is the story of the gospel. And the story of the gospel is the best story that there is. Let's pray.